This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you listen. New episodes come out every other Friday. Welcome, everyone. My name is Chris Ansel, and I'm Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Berkeley. And I have the honor to be the moderator for today's event, the EU in Crisis. We are fortunate today to have three panelists who have been individually and collectively thinking a lot about this topic. Akasimi Newsom is the Associate Director of Berkeley's Institute of European Studies, and also the Executive Director of the Peter Sather Center for Advanced Study, which has the mission of bringing together Norwegian and Berkeley researchers. She herself is a scholar of labor, immigration, and race in Europe, and I'm proud to say that she has her PhD in political science from my own department. Marianne Rittervold is a professor of political science at the Inland Norway University of Applied Sciences. She, also, she is also a senior fellow at Berkeley's Institute of European Studies and is affiliated as well with ARENA, the University of Oslo's Center for European Studies. Her research focuses on EU foreign and defense policy. And Jarl Trondahl is professor of public administration at the University of Agder in Norway and is also affiliated with the university's ARENA Center. He is a scholar of European public administration, and particularly its multi-level dimensions, uh, that is how it stretches across both national and European administrative levels. Thanks to all of you for being here with us today, and I guess it's getting a little late in Norway. I found out that Marianne is actually in Berkeley, coming from Norway, but Jarla is joining us mid-evening in Norway, and so thanks, special thanks to Jarla for doing that. Among their many accomplishments, what's great about Akasimi, Marianne, and Yarla is that they have teamed up to bring together their very different skills and perspectives to edit a major new handbook on EU crises, which was published by Palgrave in 2021. The European Union has recently faced a lot of crises, and this book is meant to provide a comprehensive resource for understanding how the EU is handling these crises and how. Uh, crises are in turn affecting the process of European integration. If you take a look at the book, which I urge you to do, you will immediately appreciate that understanding the relationship between the EU and crisis means bringing together a lot of different ideas and people and perspectives together in addition to their own. This was truly a massive project, nearly 800 pages in length, And that means that the editors of this important project have a lot to tell us in a short period of time. So without further ado, I want to turn the floor over to them. They're going to talk for about 10 minutes each, starting with Yarla. And then we're going to open up uh, the discussion to the audience. I I find it easiest to use the chat function on Zoom to signal that you'd like to ask a question. Uh, But please, if you will, hold those questions until the panelists have had a chance to make their opening remarks. And then I'll I'll let you know that we, we're, we're open for questions. So uh, thanks to the panelists, thanks to the audience, and let me turn this over now to, uh, to Yarla. Thank you, Chris, uh, and thank you for hosting us and for sharing some insights on this book. 
Uh, I don't have a slide. I think there will come slides uh, just right after me. Uh, but let me go, uh, run through some of the key ambitions of uh, of the book. Um, so uh, one way of of, uh, of talking about this book is by referencing back to Alan Millward's describing European integration as the rescue of the nation state. Uh, when faced with collective challenges, a nation state responded through cooperation and the surrendering of sovereignty. Since then, the EU has evolved by seeking common solutions to shared problems. The result is a union built on compromises between the twin desires of supranational integration and intergovernmental uh, cooperation. And the current corona pandemic is the latest addition to a long list of crises, uh, uh, which is uh, uh, included in, uh, in this volume. Uh, we focus on a Euro Eurozone financial crisis, the migration crisis, the Brexit crisis, as well as the crisis of anti-European populism and anti-democratic trends. Uh, but, uh, and also Europe is, is facing a more aggressive Russia with, and states uh, that is questioning uh, multilateral agreements and cooperation. So the Polgar Handbook of uh, EU Crisis asks how the EU cope with crisis. And based on chapters from a broad collegium of scholars, including a very nice chapter by you, Chris, it shows that the EU has been surprisingly able to cope with crisis of um, different kinds through adaptations, through reforms, and through further integration. To us, this suggests that the EU has perhaps reached a level of integration on maturation where it is sufficiently consolidated to deal with profound challenges. So crisis doesn't easily um, uh, run down the union. We argue that crisis no longer pose ex existential threats to the EU as a political order. Uh, in order to organize uh, this uh, volume, we uh, developed three very broad conceptual types to categorize what we observe, but indeed not to uh, explain uh, what we observe uh, uh, regarding crisis uh, responses. So one, the first scenario is uh, is perhaps the obvious uh, obvious first uh, is uh, the scenario of breaking down, suggesting that crises are likely to test the preferences of states to come together, and gradually bring integration down. This might include uh, the breaking down of institutions at the EU level, uh, the breaking down of policy domain at the EU level and the will to cooperate, and so on. Uh, heading forward is the opposite uh, scenario to this one, suggesting that crisis may be seen as windows of opportunity, leading to more integration rather than less. And this, if, if happened, would lead to the creation of new institutions at the EU level, the strengthening uh, of existing ones, pooling of authority to new policy domain at EU level, and so on. Uh, Muddling through, uh, we use as a compromise a pragmatic alternative in between these extremes, uh, suggesting that the EU might be likely to make it 
through crisis by building on already uh, pre-existing resources and solutions. And if uh, observed, this might come as a case of reforming institutions, modifying policies, creating network solutions, and so on. So what we find in, uh, in the book uh, by going through uh, a lot of chapters on most EU institutions, there's one, one section on, on the effects on institutions and one uh, big section on effects on policy fields, uh, we find most evidence for the second and third scenario, but indeed also some indications, uh, however much fewer, of uh, breaking down. So uh, the book suggests that crises tend to uh, mainly move integration forward, uh, but often less uh, in an innovative way than the second scenario would lead uh, us to expect. So path dependencies, lock-ins, lock-in effects are prevalent in which crisis responses build on already pre-existing solutions. We also observe that crises are drivers of new institutions and policies. Sometimes crises tend to fuel support for common EU policy responses, even in reluctant member states. Examples are many. Uh, we will come back to some of them uh, just in a minute. But just to mention uh, the financial crisis, it led to a series of new toolkits uh, and uh, EU institutions, such as the European semester. And uh, during the Brexit, Brexit negotiations, the EU also managed to act mostly as a united uh, uh, order. Uh, but we also see that despite of a political break uh, between the UK and the Union, we, uh, which is uh, in a sense a, a breaking down uh, observation, we at the same time observe a continuity of administrative networks that tend to prevail between UK administrative institutions and European ones. So for example, that, that UK uh, agencies uh, have... Uh, as more or less the same role in administrative networks uh, in the EU as before Brexit. But Marianne will, uh, will run through some cases of crisis responses in uh, some, some greater detail. But uh, in order to, uh, to run uh, a wrap-up uh, handbook, which is impossible uh, um, in any detail, we... Uh, <coughs> sorry. Um, crisis tend to lead to more integration, we could argue, not less. Uh, so based on expectations of previous crises, as described in the book and analyzed in the book, it is therefore not surprising to find that contrary to popular impressions, the corona pandemic is producing more integration in a path-dependent manner. While this is not a book on the, on the pandemic, uh, we still uh, have one chapter that, uh, that uh, discusses uh, responses to that as well. So while member states reacted unilaterally at the beginning of the pandemic, they quickly developed a consensus that closer cooperation within the EU uh, is needed. So I think I, I leave it uh, at that uh, for now. And uh, I guess I'll leave the floor to Marianne. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you, Jarle. And I am going to try to share... Um, some slides, let's see. I hope that's working. Um, uh, so um, 
Good uh, afternoon, everyone. Uh, thanks a lot to the Institute of European Studies for uh, organizing this event and to Chris not only for uh, uh, hosting it, uh, but also for contributing a really fantastic chapter on institutionalism and crisis in our handbook. So I think that everyone who's interested in social sciences uh, theory or e-integration theory should definitely at least read his chapter uh, in the book. Um, uh, so just to move on from uh, Jarle, what I will do now is that I will discuss some of the cases where the EU has headed forward or modeled through uh, some of the cases uh, or some of the crises it has faced in recent years. And then like I said, we will talk about some of the main challenges that the EU still uh, Facing And as I'm not going to say this again, but just briefly what Jarl already mentioned was that when we started this project, what we wanted to do in a sense was to take a bird's eye perspective on understanding if, how and why crisis affects EU integration. And uh, having done so, we know, know a lot about the impact of crisis and we also know much more about the mechanisms by which crisis affects the EU and also uh, or integration and organizations more broadly uh, and um, and uh, we also uh, know a lot more about uh, the relevance of different theories for understanding uh, EU integration and organizational continuity and change so it's relevant both for EU integration theories and, and studies but also other social sciences so and as Jarle also said uh, what we find is that crises tend to drive more integration. That's a general finding, uh, even if the EU uh, is also facing huge challenges. And I will uh, not go through all the different crises, but that, because that would take too long. Uh, but I will kind of say something about some of our key findings on areas where we would not expect the EU to head forward in response to crisis. There are crises in certain areas where we, at the outset at least, might expect less integration as a result. Uh, so what uh, do I mean by that, saying that there are some areas that are least likely cases of EU integration? Well, as you know, and uh, you already mentioned this, the EU is a very unique um, uh, uh, type of international uh, system or international organization. Uh, uh, as sorry, I went too far. As the difference, uh, uh, as a difference to all other international organizations, the EU is unique because it has a supranational, independent decision-making system, where this beyond the state system adopts law uh, uh, on the uh, uh, independently of the member states, or when the law is superior to EU member states' own national regulations. And the reason for this is, as Jarle said, uh, a historical construct in a sense. It's the, it's the result of a lot of compromises, often in response to various crises and challenges between some member states wanting the EU to do more in response to common challenges and other states wanting to keep more uh, national sovereignty, in, at least in some areas. So the EU is driven a lot by crisis, but you have these different views on what the treaties, the EU constitution, in, in a sense, should say. What should the EU do in 
in what sense or how should it do it? How much should it do? How much power should be moved from the member states up to the EU level into this kind of in, independent policy making uh, legal system? And the result of this is that today, um, almost all policy areas in the EU are integrated, but there are some areas that go to the core of the member state sovereignty where the member states have decided to hold on to the decisions, the policy decisions themselves. So the member states so far, or at least up until now, and things are changing, as I will say, member states have said that in the, the, the areas that go to the heart of uh, national sovereignty, that's kind of security and defense, it's migration or citizenship who should be able to gain citizenship in a state. And health policies, these have been the least integrated policy areas in the EU. But what we see is that in uh, looking at the latest year's crisis, we see that even in these areas, we see developments towards more integration as a result of crisis. So, uh, uh, as I said, crisis drive more integration in even in these policy areas. So, Yala mentioned we see Brexit, where the member states have been surprisingly united. Uh, um, in uh, keeping and etc. And with migration, there are some developments, etc. And Maxim, come back to me, move back to that. But even in these kinds of least likely cases, we see that crisis drive integration forward. So let me just then kind of illustrate with two key examples that are also very um, topical, that are very much discussed in everyday newspapers, so that it would be foreign and security policy, the Ukraine crisis, the still ongoing Ukraine crisis, and the US response to COVID-19. So at the outset, health policy is a policy area that does is not decided on at the EU level. But what we see in uh, the chapter that is uh, written, that was written by uh, Scott Greer and his colleagues, is that the EU is kind of it's failing forward in this area, which means that it takes a big, takes big steps forward in response to crisis, but maybe not enough. So there will be new challenges and the EU will have to take new steps forward to, to kind of try to deal with the consequences of the corona crisis. And a lot is going on in the area of health, but there are like uh, two main developments uh, in that, uh, in response to the COVID nineteen crisis in the EU, one is financial, and the other one is in the area of health. Of course, the Corona crisis created a huge financial crisis in the in the world in and in Europe, and many European states were struggling to deal with the economic consequences. And what is unique with the Corona crisis is that it led to a shift in the way that the EU collects money and um, distributes them. So normally, since the EU would kind of collect debt in the market collectively, so it would be the member states who are responsible for them. But what happened with the, when the EU developed a huge financial rescue package to help the member states deal with the consequences of the corona crisis is that the member states for the first time agreed that it would be an EU institution, the commission, who would go out and lend money from the bank. That's a huge, huge step in and sometimes been referred to as a Hamiltonian moment, kind of referring to the moment when the US 
federal government took responsibility for the, the state's um, death. So that's an enormous heading forward moment in kind of in the level of integration, because now everyone's responsible for the other's death instead of just the member states having to take care of their own uh, landings. Uh, and it's also um, uh, another in the area of health, uh, a huge change that we observe is that health, as I mentioned, has been one of these areas where the member states have not wanted to integrate, or in particular the Nordic or the northern states have not wanted to integrate because uh, they fear kind of health shopping so that uh, persons from poor countries would go to the richer countries to get better treatment. But now this kind of um, objection is more or less gone now. They, health has been redefined as an European issue. So what we expect, even if it's too early, is that there will be much more integration and uh, less and, and uh, common EU policies in this domain. Of course, we also have had a common vaccine uh, pass, vaccination passports, etc. And it's also important to remember that even in spite of all of these crises that has, have been going on, and in, even under the corona crisis, most of what the EU does just kind of went on as normal. So it was business as usual in most of the EU's daily kind of business. I will uh, finish up soon, but just want to really uh, briefly mention another of these kinds of least likely cases of integration uh, where like foreign and security policy is kind of the main exemption from the EU supranational system in the EU. In this area, the EU functions like a typical international organizations. The member states have weak powers. They haven't decided to keep control of foreign and security policy themselves. But what we see is that also in this domain, the uh, several crises drive EU security and, uh, and defense cooperation forward. And in particular, of course, and I'm sure you're following this in the news, um, the Ukraine, uh, still ongoing Ukraine crisis. But there are several crises that are discussed in the book linked to uh, the weakening of EU-US relations uh, that started beyond before Trump. It was exaggerated by Trump, but it's also continued after Trump with the changing US foreign policies away from Europe towards China. Uh, we also see that Europeans were, uh, they were uh, Trump presidents, it took Europeans by surprise because Europeans have tended to take the uh, American security guarantee for granted. And suddenly Europeans realized that that's not necessarily the case. So if US foreign policy and EU-US relations might change with a new president again. That's uh, So that's one driver of EU foreign security policy that we discuss in the book. Another one is actually Brexit, because Brexit has been one of the um, least eager countries to give up uh, powers in the area of security and defense. Uh, and uh, the Ukraine crisis will, and Russia's aggression even today, will have probably have, if anything, the opposite effect of what Russia wants. It will uh, make uh, the Europeans uh, uh, more focused on developing a stronger foreign and security policy. And much of the discussion in Europe now is how much of this will be in NATO, how much will be in the EU. But the EU has taken big steps, even if the 
EU is a machine that moves slowly. We see a lot of new um, uh, new actions, uh, initiatives in the area of security and defense. So if from since 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, which was a huge shock to the Europeans, of course, and to the world, the first time a, a, a European state or any state went into another or annexed another, a part of a, another state's territory. And with the situation going on today, these are clear drivers and we several of the chapters discuss that. So I think I've um, spent my time. We can come back to this in the Q&A and then leave the floor to uh, Thank you so much, uh, Marianne and uh, Yarla, and of course, Chris, for hosting and moderating this discussion. Uh, I'm going to share my screen. So um, for a few minutes, I'll go into a bit more detail on the cases, two of the cases that we um, examine in the handbook, in which um, the project of EU integration um, in the context of crisis, we see more muddling through and even breaking down. And uh, for this, I'll be looking at the legitimacy crisis or the rule of law crisis in which we have a a breakdown of the uh, democratic order in the member states, particularly of Hungary and Poland. Um, And I'll also be looking at the migration crisis in some detail. So regarding the rule of law crisis, uh, as many of you, I'm sure, are familiar just from the news, uh, democracy has been under threat in Hungary and Poland, um, owing to the success of right wing populist governments who have been open, uh, not only in their rhetoric about undermining the rule of law, in attacking judicial independence, uh, in attacking freedom of the press, and attacking uh, many human rights uh, conventions um, to which uh, EU member states um, are are a party to, but they have uh, moved forward in action to implement um, these kinds uh, of policies that are a threat to democracy. And when it comes to the rule of law and legitimacy crisis, uh, chapters by uh, Rauba and Kostarias, uh, by Holst and Molander, and by De Vilda uh, really uh, assess the evidence uh, for um, the, the real um, viability of the EU integration project when it comes to the responses that the EU has had um, to these uh, situations. So when it comes to the the rule of law challenges, um, when we look at um, the the case specifically of Poland, I I have this uh, cartoon as an illustration Um, This is supposed to be Andrzej Duda, the president of Poland, um, with basically a a hammer, taking a hammer to uh, democracy in in the EU order, undermining the EU order from uh, the news website Vox Europe. And since uh, the Law and Justice Party came to power in Poland in 2015, Um, It's taken steps to control the justice system and the judiciary, including placing uh, loyalists on a judicial appointments body, forcing the retirement of some Supreme Court justices, establishing a legal chamber with the authority to discipline judges and prosecutors who take um, 
legal positions that are opposed by the Law and Justice Party. And the EU court, the Court of Justice of the EU ruled that this disciplinary chamber was illegal and ordered it closed. And this um, did not take place. So at the time of publication of the, the handbook on EU crises, um, Rava and Koshariyas in particular assessed the response of EU institutions such as the Commission and the Court of Justice as an example of breaking down um, because uh, they had not gotten uh, law and justice to reverse some of the, um, the uh, actions taken to undermine rule of law uh, that the EU had identified as problematic. Um, and this is uh, uh, still the situation that the EU currently is in. Now, this is not to say that the EU has not um, taken more steps in the developments that have occurred since the, the publication of our handbook. Um, already, it was quite clear that the EU um, was willing to and did take the step of invoking um, Article 7, the Article 7 uh, procedure in which Poland was found to be in, in violation of the treaties of the European Union in which member states commit to um, the preservation of the rule of law and the, the democratic order. Um, another uh, point I think that ought to be made when it comes to evidence for breaking down um, discussed by the chapters in the book, but also that have uh, come to bear fruit in more recent events concerns um, the ability of EU action, such as um, invoking Article 7 and, um, and its ability to deter other member states. Um, so with uh, Fidesz in Hungary, um, this has not been the case in which actions taken against Poland have not resulted in deterrence for um, other uh, member states where there are rule of law challenges. Now, all of us, of course, um, are, are waiting um, with um, some anticipation and bated breath um, regarding the recent um, decision of the Constitutional Court in Poland, which actually ruled in October that Polish law, when it comes in conflict with EU law, is, is supreme above EU law, which again, um, basically is, is going against the acquis communautaire that um, Poland had to you know, commit to in order to become uh, a member state. And um, already um, the EU commission has, um, has uh, started to fine um, Poland a million euro um, a day in, in quite a recent development this month for its unwillingness to um, follow um, previous sort of judicial rulings from the European um, Court of Justice. So this is uh, a developing case when it comes to the challenge of uh, rule of law within EU member states, particularly in Poland. 
And I think, you know, um, it's, it's something where several of our chapters uh, were able to provide quite a bit of context for the uh, current day uh, development and situation in Poland when it comes to um, uh, kind of the, the difficulties that the EU faces um, in um, addressing rule of law challenges um, within uh, a few of the member states. Now, um, so I've, I've talked in some detail about this. Uh, let me go now to uh, the migration crisis. So uh, we have a section in the book that looks closely at the 2015-2016 migration refugee crisis. Um, many uh, of, the, of the people who came uh, to Europe, of course, were fleeing war in Syria. Um, since the book has been published, there, of course, has been the return of the Taliban in Afghanistan, which triggered another flow of, of refugees. And most recently, um, there is the crisis at the Poland-Belarus border. And so uh, the, the photo that I have here is of um, a standoff. This photo dates from November 2021. At Kuznica, and I apologize to to any Polish speakers if I'm probably um, mispronouncing that. Um, uh, but a standoff um, as uh, refugees from the Middle East uh, who, who seek to claim asylum um, within the EU, uh, within uh, Poland, um, basically are, are not allowed to cross, and the Polish government is. Um, amassing troops at the border at Belarus um, because they wish to prevent uh, refugees from setting foot um, on EU territory, on um, Poland's territory, so that they can exercise uh, their right to asylum. So in, in the sections in the book that address uh, these migration uh, crises, I think that um, our our co-authors, our contributors, uh, were, were readily able to identify um, what the, the migration crises, what kind of challenge this poses for uh, European integration, and the challenge is really at two levels. In that, on the on the one hand. There are national parties within each member state that are divided about migration as a threat to the nation, and then national governments. So the governments of the member states disagree with EU officials when it comes to uh, migration and its impact on the, the European project. So in 2015 to 2016, um, you had more people coming to Europe, and then you had more people dying. Uh, very tragically, on the way to Europe. And the EU responded initially with um, a rescue effort, uh, which we know um, as Operation Mare Nostrum. But this was quickly overtaken by a, a reject effort. Um, one example of, of which is the UNAV for Sofia, which um, Marianne has written about in, in other work and, and I have addressed 
um, as well. Uh, but there, the, the language is around preventing human trafficking, but it was clear um, to the media, to the refugees themselves, to citizens in, in, in the EU, that the point was to reject and prevent as many people as possible from stepping foot within the EU. So um, a real challenge um, for EU integration in this policy area has been what to identify the objective of the EU in the response to these uh, various migration crises. Um, uh, one uh, policy response that we see EU member states taking part in was, of course, um, the, the EU-Turkey agreement. Uh, this uh, was an exchange in which uh, member states agreed uh, to offer payments to Turkey and eased uh, visa access for Turkey's, Turkish citizens to um, the EU in exchange um, for um, Turkey basically holding uh, refugees, keeping refugees from entering the EU. And um, in, in some accounts, it has been assessed to, be, to have been quite successful in preventing um, large numbers of migrants and refugees from um, entering um, from entering Europe. So to conclude, with our volume, um, we uh, have found quite a bit of evidence for heading forward when it comes to um, the cases of uh, foreign and security policy, um, when it comes to um, the financial response to the financial crisis, and even for the public health crisis of COVID. But there are some challenges that the EU faces, and migration and the rule of law are two areas um, where there are still substantial challenges when it comes to the, the project of EU integration. So I'll stop. Okay, thanks to all three of you. And um, if people would like to use the chat function uh, to indicate that they have a question and then I can call on you, that's I, we, I find that works very well. So I already have one question from Louis Dolinsky. Louis, would you like to ask your question? I'm, I'm just wondering how successful the EU is going to be in reigning in Hungary and Poland. I mean, uh, are they going to continue to get away with what they, those governments going to continue to get away with what they're doing while receiving EU money? Akasimi, I think maybe, do you want to follow up on that? Thank you for your question, Louis. So this is an unfolding um, event right now when it comes to Poland's um, rejection of basically the EU legal order. But the commission, um, in its ability to enforce EU law, is um, basically with withdrawing and starting the non-payment of the, the common EU budget to Poland. So um, it, it is clear that the, the amount at a million euro a day uh, that you can find in any news, uh, news coverage of this will uh, impact Poland's ability uh, to function. So there is some sense that um, fines um, could uh, get Poland to uh, behave differently, but we'll have to just wait and see. What about Hungary? 
Marianne, did you also want to respond to that question? Sure, I can also respond, and it's a it's a good question. And I think, like Akasemi said, that I, the kind of the challenge that you're facing with Hungary and Poland is kind of the perhaps the most existential threat that you're facing in a sense because it undermines the values of the EU, which is based on human rights and and the rule of law. And the EU, the EU is a rule based system, uh, but it's also a voluntary system. I mean. So you have a distinct decision-making procedures and institutions, but in the end, the member states, if it's up to the member states to decide what rules or laws they want to abide by or not, the whole system is kind of breaking down. And if I remember correctly, I think what the EU can do is that they have these kind of smaller procedures like uh, fines and Article 7. Another thing is to to um, take away their uh, voting rights in the council, okay, the, the, the main kind of decision-making body in the EU, but that would require unanimity. So Poland and Hungary support each other on that. The third thing is linked to funds. And what the commission is already doing is, uh, is uh, saying that Poland and Hungary are not getting any money from the rescue package until they comply with the rule of law requirements. And when it's and then again, as you say, I mean, Poland, Hungary's economies are built on EU funds, uh, at least partly, and they they need EU funds for the countries to function, which is a difficult uh, dilemma because you, if you take them away, you punish the Polish population while you want to punish the the, the, the government. So this kind of thing with sanctions, etc., is always. Uh, uh, difficult, but at the moment the EU is holding back the rescue package, uh, so it has moved a bit uh, much f- uh, further since we did the book because you know holding back money was not an option previously, and the court is going to EU court is going to rule on whether or not they can even hold back money from the EU general budget. So there are more and more voices saying that unless you start behaving, you won't get money from the from the EU anymore. That's how I see it, at least, that we have like money countries and even Germany is now kind of saying out loud that maybe we won't give you money if you don't start behaving, which is a big change. So I think we're seeing move slowly, but I think we're seeing a change. Um, We have a second question from Nora Fisher-Onar. Nora, would you like to ask your question? Uh, yeah, thank you so much for uh, for putting this event together and this uh, amazing book. I think the prism of uh, crisis is, you know, so very productive. Uh, it very much speaks to uh, our zeitgeist, you know, well beyond the EU as well. Uh, and I wanted to um, ask a question. I was, you know, really intrigued by. Uh, it was, I think it was during Marianne's presentation when you talked about sort of, you know, the way that um, these. All of these various crises have kind of um, uh, perhaps counterintuitively, but in some respects quite encouragingly, um, sort of uh, impelled a, um, a, a a reckoning and a coming together of kind of uh, geopolitical thrust in the, in the EU and kind of a stronger sense of um, uh, the EU as a geopolitical actor. Um, and that has its advantages, you know, certainly when, you know, you look at the, the pictures of the border that uh, Akasemi shared um, and, and, and the, the fraught situation on the border vis-a-vis Russia. Um, but by the same token, I wanted to ask if there was also a sense that um, the reasons for the rebirth of geopolitics, which include the rise of non-Western actors, um, the uh, 
uh, emergence or re-emergence of sort of you know post-colonial um, actors from the global south coming forth and and demanding a more active voice um, in international affairs. You know that has the potential to sort of impel towards a different sort of reckoning, which is kind of a reckoning with um, you know the legacies of that sort of uh, that that geopolitical um, uh, way of looking in the world and 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 uh, and, and sort of confronting the um, the EU's own sort of uh, colonial heritage and kind of reassessing its relationships um, with the, the broader, you know, non-European world, um, so to speak. And so I was kind of wondering if there's, uh, if, if you got in the in the chapters of your book, any sense of um, of these crises impelling towards that sort of a reckoning as well. Um, and this is a reckoning that also speaks to the the, the challenge of, you know, populism and, uh, and rule of law, because of course, some of the, um, you know, the impetus and the source of the support for populist politics um, has to do with fears of the geocultural other uh, out there, be it Russia or migrants um, or, uh, you know, Turkey uh, to the south. Um, and then just so, sort of a follow-up question, piggyback, uh, piggybacking on that, um, what role does Germany have to play here with the transition of leadership in Germany and a new paradigm change in Germany? You know, Germany itself is an actor that, um, that, uh, that uh, experienced and contributed to multiple crises steeped in geopolitics that it then uh, uh, atoned for in its uh, internal national politics in a way that kind of produced a new form of politics that was constitutive of the, of the whole EU project itself. So how do you see Germany playing a role now under um, new leadership um, in terms of whether geopolitics becomes an exclusionary way of being an international actor or um, potentially a geopolitics of reckoning with the, um, the legacies of uh, sort of inequities in north-south relations hope that makes sense okay thank you should i start yeah go ahead Maya. okay sorry that's of course a huge uh huge question going to many different aspects of eu foreign policy how it's kind of being influenced with the broader geopolitical factors and uh, the fact that the eu is kind of now I think one of the main challenges, or the EU is facing a lot of challenges, but one is finding its kind of place in between China and the US in the bigger geopolitical context, as you also alluded to, because um, the EU is kind of struggling to, it wants to have good relations with China because of its uh, economic interests. Uh, at the same time, it's uh, the U.S., of course, wants loyalty from the Europeans when it comes to dealing with, with China in a different geopolitical uh, context. And there's, of course, also the question of human rights uh, violations in China. So this is something where the EU is, has not found its way or figured out uh, how it's going to deal with, uh, I think. But if we look at the new... German government and what they have said so far on uh, uh, foreign policy is that it seems like the Germany is one, it's ready to take on more responsibility for foreign security policy in Europe. And second, it wants to uh, take a much harder stance towards uh, China. So, uh, so, and also there's a bigger focus on human rights with the new foreign minister. The other thing that you're raising is also uh, a big, big problem, of course, or challenge for the EU. The EU likes to present itself as this normative power who promotes human rights, multilateral cooperation, puts norms um, before uh, interests, etc. But it has, as you said, uh, um, 
postcolonial legacy. It is it is often faced with uh, uh, accusations of double standards, etc. Uh, um, so I'm not sure, and it, I'm not sure how how the EU will balance that. It's hard, but of course, then again, you have different views within the EU. We have some member states being very focused on anti-migration, for example, and other states being much more concerned with also, uh, for example, human rights considerations. So I think uh, with the U.S. administration, which is focused on human rights, you could have more. It's easier. That's what Akasema has also shown in her previous research that the EU struggles more to uphold kind of its focus on multilateralism and human rights without the strong US leadership. So, but I think these are some of the things that we really, really need to study and that will be core to understand the future of EU foreign policy. We move on to one question from Avi Rosenweig. Uh, Avi, would you like to ask that question or? Shall I ask it for you? you? You posted it. It's 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 fine as it stands. Okay. Uh, so I asked, does the timing of France taking the EU Council presidency this term have any implications for these topics? Since uh, since Marianne and Akasimi already spoke, Jarl, you have any thoughts on that? Um. I haven't thought through that uh, that question, but uh, just uh, from the top of my head, and also based on on um, on the handbook, I think uh, that w- one response could be that perhaps not that much. Uh, uh, and the, the reason for be for that is that uh, most of the capacities uh, when it comes to to driving agendas in the European Com- in the European Union is is vested in the European Commission uh, uh, much more than in the Council. So. One potential uh, guess would then be that it's uh, it's there's a there's a, f- a fight within the EU when it comes to the who is uh, uh, which which institution is like uh, leading uh, when it comes to say, putting up the big agendas. But you know, clearly, the Commission has by far the str- uh, the most uh, uh, strongest capacity to to drive things through compared to the Council, which basically hasn't uh, much. Uh, uh, capacity administrative capacities left so um, so that could be one response at least okay we we are just basically out of uh, uh i should first ask marianne and akasimi did you have any did you want to follow up on that at all or is, okay. maybe in foreign policy we could see uh the france has always been the kind of main promoter of more here foreign strong foreign policy in europe so that's going to be one of its core focus areas and also it's also very focused on health sovereignty so it might help and that's with all of these things are also in line with the commission's wishes so when the two when the when france germany which it seems like it's going to be the case and the commission come together things tend to happen in the eu so in that sense i guess and it's also the french elections that is when it comes to migration policies the, the france is very focused on protecting new borders and you have two right um, or more populist uh, right-wing uh, candidates. That is does not look good in terms of the use, huge uh, challenges when it comes to respecting international uh, conventions and uh, immigration policies, unfortunately. But that's too early to say. Maybe that will change as well. Commission, again, is you know focused in on international law, so that could go the other way as well. Akasimi, final words? 
I guess just all that I would add to uh, Marianne and Yarla would be, I think one real strength of the handbook is that we are uh, making some important contributions to IR theory, not least of which is our attention to um, the importance of domestic politics for um, some of the larger international relations questions, such as that of um, the direction of EU integration. And when it comes to uh, the role of France with the EU Council presidency, the election uh, upcoming of, of France, I think, is, um, is quite important as that will happen in April. And so this uh, may lead to quite low expectations then of what um, holding the presidency means when Macron may or may not be on his um, way out. And just to um, reach back a bit to um, Professor Fisher-Owner's question earlier, I think um, a lot more research has to be done um, when it comes to, for example, um, citizen mobilization within the member states around questions of Europe's relationship to its past, to its colonial past, and the degree to which these movements um, want to transform EU institutions, um, to which these citizens want to have an impact. So I think more research has to be done, but I think um, a fair bit on the importance of domestic politics and citizen um, movements uh, more broadly um, is something that we do address um, in the crisis handbook, and I'll stop there. Okay, so I think we're, we're out of time. So I want to thank the panelists and I want to thank the audience. And um, I think it was a, a lively session. And um, I would just encourage all of you to go and take a look at this. There's, as uh, uh, Nora said, there's a, so crisis is such a rich lens through which to, to look at politics. And uh, there's a lot in this, in this volume. So go, go take a look at it. And thanks to the panelists. Thanks to Ray for organizing this, and thanks to the audience. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, Chris. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acasts, or wherever you listen. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.